You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. This program originally aired in 2014. I believe we're in the right place. I think so. I think so. Justice Sotomayor, today people were asking whether or not this event would be held tonight, you know, whether you get through the snow. And I said to my colleagues, I read this book. This woman can do anything. (laughs) (laughs) But if you read the book, you know it's always with help. Right. Okay? And I surround myself with wonderful people. And the wonderful people who got me here are public servants, the United States Marshals, that were with me in Pittsburgh last night and who heard that my plane was canceled, that the airports to Boston would likely be closed, and they figured out a plan of driving me last night from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia. It took us eight hours. They drove through a blizzard, sleet, and ice for all of that time. We arrived in Philly at 7 this morning, and at 10 o'clock I was on an Excella here. You know, in this day and age when we're sometimes disappointed in the way government functions, (laughs) um, it is really important to remember that we have public servants who do their job in heroic yeoman and yeoman-like ways and who are dedicated. I thank them. I thank all of you in the audience for making it. (laughs) You know, in Washington, D.C., it snows an inch and people stay home. I'm not joking, actually. (laughs) But, you know, thank you. Um, I didn't want to disappoint all the wonderful people, starting with Patricia, who made tonight happen and are making tonight happen, like Virginia. And I also know that I appreciate that you're taking the time to spend this evening with me, or a piece of it. So thank you for being here with me. Well, I can say personally that it is an honor, but we are speaking to a justice of the Supreme Court, um, so I just want to let everybody know that off-base will be any prior or pending cases. We're going to be talking about her story, which is so rich and wonderful that I'm sure we won't be disappointed. Um, Yes, you, you did figure out that asking for help was essential in your life, but early in your life, you had what you called an existential independence, and as early as seven years old, You were becoming self-reliant. I'm thinking of the story that you tell in the book about giving yourself your insulin shots when it was discovered that you had childhood or juvenile diabetes. Can you tell us that story? Sure. But I'm going to start by telling you that the only reason I continued doing it after the first shot was because I hurt myself less than my mother and father had. (laughs) Um, No. (laughs) Um... Perhaps I'll back up so people understand the setting, okay? This is really, I don't know, the first chapter of the book. 
And I had to find a vehicle in the book to introduce my family, to introduce the family dynamic, and to talk about the important people in my childhood. And I felt that, and describe myself a little bit. And so as I thought about my youth, I realized that on many levels, my diagnosis of diabetes was a major turning point in my life. Um, it's a condition that altered my eating habits, that altered my self-perceptions about my health, um, and fundamentally altered my expectations of my future at the time. And so I felt that it provided a wonderful backdrop to all of those issues. And what happened was that I got out of the hospital. The first morning, mom gave me my shot. The second morning, uh, dad gave it to me. My mother, who was then a practical nurse, was so anxiety-ridden, I can't say nervous, but so unhappy that I saw the resolve in her face and she sort of turned steel cold and she reared back and it was like she punched me in the arm. The next day, um, when my dad did it, he trembled so much that I was afraid he was gonna hit me somewhere in the face or neck, okay? And he hurt too, okay? Imagine somebody giving you a shot when they're shaking, okay? Um, the third day I got up, which was a Sunday, and they were arguing, as they did quite frequently, about who would give me the shot. And the familiar themes of my family's fighting, um, my father's alcoholism, my mother's need to work to help support the family, all of those things came out, as did some of the things that frightened me. Um, the fact that I would need these shots for the rest of my life, the fact that um, I, someone would likely have to give them to me. And as I was listening to this, I had a light bulb go off in my head, almost, it felt like a light bulb. I realized that what they were saying was that I was going to not be able to stay with my grandmother, who was my refuge and my protector in life. And I knew, because I knew her, that it would be too painful for her to give me that injection. And I knew I had to do it myself. So at seven years old, you learned how to sterilize the needle by boiling the water, checking and making sure that there were no air bubbles in it and giving yourself a shot. I mean, this is, an, when I was seven years old, I used to run away from the doctor when he was giving shots. Well, I, I tell the story in the book that the first time they took um, blood out of my arm, the doctor kept saying, this looks worse, it won't hurt as much. And he kept coming closer and closer and the needle got bigger and bigger in my eyes. <laughs> and he's about right at my vein. And I looked at him, and I looked at the needle, and I said, no. I jumped out of the chair, and this was a very small hospital at the time. It got built into a slightly bigger edifice 
a few years later, but at the time it was a tiny little hospital my mother worked in. And the laboratory was literally after the front door where the telephone operators were, small hallway to the back where the doctor's offices were in the laboratory. I jumped out of the chair, right past the operator, outside, underneath a car. <laughs> I still remember all those shadows of feet all around the car, and I kept trying to dodge them. Needless to say, I failed, and they dragged me back, and I hollered and hooted and screamed while they held me down. Um, my edit editor took out the line, which is, it's real hard to feel something hurting you when you're screaming as loud as I was. <laughs> um, at any rate, but, but so, no, I wasn't that different, but I think, as you were as a kid, but I think that, that I had already gone through being scared by everything, mm -hmm. scared by my mother's reaction and my father's, by my grandmother's reaction and my father's family's feelings and statements when they thought I was asleep in another room, that this was something that was dire. Um, and the sense of its burden already. When you're a child, people around you in hospitals tend to use very big words. They have no understanding sometimes how frightening words you don't understand can be, especially when they're technical. And so I had just been surrounded with all of these things for weeks because I was in the hospital for at least two weeks. Um, I, and I keep saying three, and mom keeps saying two, and I think it was probably her memories on this is better than mine. But my point is that at that point, I had a need to take back some of my life, to take some control over this condition. Well, it's also a little characteristic of your family dynamic. Um, one of the things, one of the things about the candor of this book is that you let the adults in your life be complicated human beings. And your father was an alcoholic, but he was also a warm-hearted man who you describe becoming almost monstrous as he drank. His face would sort of contort and twist, and he would lumber around and become this heavy presence. And oftentimes when children are born into alcoholic families, they adopt skills, you know, they learn how to read the room, they learn how to re take the emotional temperature. And I wonder if for you, the law was appealing because it was ordered, it was codified, it was, it had beginnings and ends in a way that a childhood with that much uncertainty may not have had. It didn't, and you're right. It, it was a palliative to chaos, a palliative to anger, because as most people who have family relations where someone is dependent, whether it's on alcoholism, pills, or drugs, there's generally a lot of strife in the home. Um, and the law did seem to me as a way of normalizing the relationship, of bringing some sense of peace to relationships. Not ideal, but at least ordered. Mm -hmm. 
You were absolutely right, Virginia. Well, you talk about your experiences and, and the insecurities that plagued you uh, as you were growing up, or especially when you went into Princeton, entered the Ivy League, the things that you I were so insecure about. I still have them. I'm on the Supreme Court and I'm still insecure. <laughs> <laughs> People talk as, I've, as though they've left me, okay? Um, I, I, no, I, I talk about in the book that, that Insecurities are a constant part, I think, of most people in some form. Mm. Um, I, I think if you, if you don't feel a little bit of anxiety in a new setting, then there may be something emotionally wrong with you. <laughs> um, only because I'm only jesting. But I think um, any new experience brings the unknown. There was also a lot of your culture that separated you from at least your peers at that time in the Ivy League, certainly. Absolutely. I had vastly different life experiences from most of my classmates at Princeton. Well, and I'm also wondering about now, I mean, you write in the book about your grandmother, this warm, wonderful woman you just described, your abuelita. Uh, conducting seances, I guess, is, for lack of a better word. She was a healer. She would channel spirit voices. I'm, I'm just she one... and my grandfather. Well, how did that go? I, I can't imagine that being in John, Chief Justice John Roberts' memoir for some reason. <laughs> so... <laughs> how, how have the other justices on the court responded to your book? Um, <laughs> I, this is very funny. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of the purposes of my book and, and why I chose to be as candid as I was is I have learned through the school of hard knocks, and I describe some of it in my book, that there's a cost for hiding things from people. Mm and that there's an advantage to sharing with people. When you show people your vulnerability, more often than not, I'm not gonna say always, but more often than not, people will open themselves to you. And I tell this story because reflective of that was the fact that my colleague, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg, like all of us on the court, during a term, the book came out in January, and that's smack in the middle of our term. Um, nobody can read a book from cover to cover very fast. You read it in chapters over a number of, of weeks, days or weeks. But every time she read a couple of chapters, when she next saw me, she would share something that was similar in her life. Mm. And um, others, like Steve Breyer, said to me, I think I understand you now. Um, <laughs> others haven't said anything, but I think that's just... <laughs> I'm sure they've had thoughts about my grandmother and thoughts about me, but I, I've given them the opportunity, if they choose, to open themselves more to me, and some have. Here's a question from the audience. Is there an informal sisterhood between the three female justices and a, a recognition of the hurdles you shared, a perspective you bring that had been muted for 200 years? Recently, um, we were at either a conference or a lunch, the justices. 
And we were all talking about periods in the court's life where they had been really um, overt hostility and anger between and among justices. Um, there's a very important book, Scorpions, that talks about one of those periods, okay? And one of my colleagues says, when did that change and why? And uh, Justice Ginsburg piped up when you started having women on the court. Oh. All right. And, and um, And I actually sat back to think about it and realized it's not that some of us are not confrontational or, or, or um, uh, uh, sort of assertive. Um, one day, uh, Justice Scalia looked at me and said, Sonia, I love you. You're just like me. You're a pit dog when you have something that you want to <laughs> convince somebody about. It's not that. But I do think that as women, we bring a relationship to the table that the group of men may have been previously missing, a sort of humanity to the relationship that might be different. And so do we as women on the court have a special relationship? I think so. Um, Justice Ginsburg, there's a tradition um, on the court that when someone's nominated, they don't reach out to the person until the Senate has finally confirmed them, which all of my colleagues did. Right after my vote, the Chief Justice called me and tracked me down. I, not quite sure how they, he did that, but I've figured out he has a lot of influence. At any rate, um, uh, and, and, uh, and calls from the others began. But the first week, I got a little package from Ruth Bader Ginsburg with a note wishing me luck and giving me a collar and telling me that she hoped I'd have use of it soon. One of those lacy collars the that One of that on she them? wears, oh. yes. Um, one that she wears. Um, and she has shared with both me and Justice Kagan her Chambers book, which is the compilation by every justice of their internal practices and the reasons why that are then passed on from year to year to law clerks. And she was the only one who thought of sharing that with us. Um, and I think that she has set that tone. And yes, there's a camaraderie, but it doesn't mean that we don't have deep-rooted friendships with our other colleagues. I think it's very, very well known that Justice Ginsburg and Justice Scalia are, are great buddies. They spend every Christmas together, I think yeah, I read they, in Jeffrey Well, they used to. I don't know if but they since are her any her longer husband since died. Her, her husband died. I think she may be spending it now with her children, but she used to. And Justice Kagan goes hunting with Justice Scalia. <laughs> well, of course, you all bring to it your own experience. And I, I was fascinated to read about when you did finally get to the Ivy League. Thank you. Um, you actually didn't know what the Ivy League was. 
Uh, nor, you know, you grew up reading Encyclopedia Britannica and Reader's Digest in the Bronxville Housing Pro Projects and then in Co-op City. I'm curious about other things you feel like you didn't know, um, and maybe a little bit about that first Ivy League experience. I was really amused to read about your first visit to Harvard. Oh. Um, I took a train to Harvard, um, and it was a rainy, soggy day. I was drenched by the time I got off the train, and then I got into there. I don't know, what are the trains called in, in, in Boston? Oh, the T. The T. I got off the T, and I'm looking around um, Boston and, I'm, and Cambridge, and I'm thinking to myself, this is as much a city as New York City is. But at any rate, I walk into the office where I was meeting the person who was going to be interviewing and talking to me. And I walk into a room, um, and there I see this perfectly coffered woman with this platinum silver hair, black lace, the most magnificent set of pearls, necklace and earrings, two white chairs, a wingback chairs, a white couch, the most spectacular red oriental rug. And all of a sudden, out of my days at this vistage, I see and hear two little yapping things. <laughs> I look down and there's a black and white poodle at her feet. Now, as I just say in my book, I came from a family where nobody owned anything that was white. <laughs> and nobody owned furniture that wasn't covered in plastic. <laughs> and I was dumbfounded. As you can tell, I'm usually not at a loss for words. <laughs> um, it may be one of the few times where I was just so taken aback. I just couldn't talk to this woman. I don't know, I don't think I was there 10 or 15 minutes. I can't tell you a word that we exchanged. I fled. I ran out of that room. I went to the assistant who was outside and said to her, you know, I've got to get home. Would you tell the students who are coming to pick me up that I had to leave? And I retraced my steps home. I walked into my apartment at home and my mother looked at me and said, why are you here? You were supposed to stay there overnight. And my response was, mom, I don't belong there. And it is really strange to say that, because then I went to Princeton. <laughs> and talk about an environment that's so totally different than anything that I had ever lived in. But the difference was in my interview experience. Um, at Princeton, there was the friend who had encouraged me to apply to the Ivy League schools. He's the one who met me at the bus. He's the one who introduced me to his friends. And as to be expected, his friends were closer to our life experiences 
than the larger body of students. And so it was less intimidating to me. And that's why I ended up in Princeton. Kids today don't understand. We didn't have the internet. You had this glossy little book that all the schools prepared to tell you about them and their course offerings. But you really, unless you had people that had gone to these institutions, knew them and could talk to them, you really had no idea what they were about. And at that time, I had nobody, no friends, no friends of friends who had ever in, um, attended places like Yale, Princeton, or Harvard. And so I had no one to ask and no way to gain that knowledge, or at least no way that I understood I, I could. Well, even though there were people who were sympathetic souls at Princeton, it was there that in a work-study job you were doing data input and you had access to the financial records of your classmates. And this was a revelation to you, right? It was amazing. It was the upper etch, uh, no, no, no. I, <laughs> I, I, there had been a survey done of, of the more well-to-do members of my class. And almost all of the kids were earning $25,000, $30,000 during the summer. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, what kind of jobs are they doing? <laughs> you know, I worked every summer and I wasn't earning anywhere near that. <laughs> I was at minimum wage. And I was like in a state of shock. I finally realized at the end of the survey, putting two and two together, that they were working at daddy's firm, business, getting paid that much money to pay their tuition. And I presume that the business was taking off the payment as a tax deduction. All right, I, I think the government has closed that loophole. <laughs> but this was the early part of this sort of thinking. And I was shocked at the amount of money that I saw people earning. Look, I made a friend in Princeton, an African-American man who I ended up liking of whole, whole lot. He was from a, a um, well, not a military family. His dad was in the military. But his dad and his uncles were all doctors. And he spent an entire bus ride back to New York with me, complaining about the fact that he was the son of the poorest member of their family because all of his uncles were in private practice making much, much more money than his dad. And at one point, I got up the nerve to say, so how much is your dad earning in the military? And he said, well, maybe eighty or $100,000. Spent the rest of the ride listening to him. And when I got off the bus, I looked at him and said, not my friend, but his name, it is somewhat hard for me to understand this. My mom supports us on $5,000 a year. Um, but that showed you how different the life was that I had walked into. I think your response is so interesting, too. Uh, in the book, you write about, you, you realize, you get this glimpse of how parochial your life has been in comparison, I guess. Um, but you sort of turned it inward. It, it makes you a little more self-conscious, but it makes you work harder. 
but you never write about being angry or resentful or, you know, the, the, it was actually when you were visiting Yale, I believe, in a similar uh, looking at colleges, that you are turned off by the kind of uh, victimization, by the throaty kind of, we are the minorities and we're not getting our due. Um, I'm just wondering how you balance those two in your life, that sort of, you know, a lot of people could take this tack and say, like, I'm going to fight against this, you know, I... My, my family lives on $5,000 a year. But you know, I think there's value to some people fighting about that. I think people who protest and people who point to the unfairnesses in life have a role. They make us not complacent about situations that are unequal, about unfairness. And they challenge people in society to be introspective about what they're doing. So I don't criticize those people. Why do you think it wasn't your tack? Because it's not my personality. You know, I talk in the book about the fact that even though I'm assertive in the courtroom and I was an assertive lawyer, I'm not an angry, confrontational person. Mm -hmm. Sarcasm is not my strong suit. Uh, not at all. And, and there are some lawyers who use sarcasm to great effect in the courtroom. But you have to judge yourself, your own strengths, your own weaknesses, and figure out what approaches, A, make you happy, and B, help you do positive things. And so, no, the revolution wasn't my tactic of doing things. I worked from within. Mm -hmm. It's what I've done my entire life to affect sometimes small changes, sometimes slightly bigger changes. But I knew that it was my way. And that's what I encourage people to do in all choices in their life, not to turn it inward and not to strike out in anger but to really take stock of what works best for them and what works best to achieve the goals that are important to them. Um, and that differs from person to person. It probably would be a very boring world if everyone was like me. <laughs> well, it was at Princeton that you did embrace some level of activism. You joined the Acción Puerto Riqueña, and then... That's pretty good. I did my best. Don't, I practiced. Don't, don't, don't leave out the amigos. We were so few in number at Princeton... The amigos. ...that we took in anybody who didn't have a group. So Native Americans joined us. Um, you know, anybody who didn't have a group, they came to our group. <laughs> and then later at Yale, the... Um, Latino, Asian, Native American group, the LANA group. I told you, the same thing. Very, very, we weren't big enough in numbers to have a group by ourselves. But this is, you, you write, the students there at, at Yale especially were eager to assimilate as quickly and as thoroughly as possible, bearing any attendant challenges and psychic costs in private. What were the psychic costs? You know, when you walk into or leave an environment that you grew up in, there can be a great danger of disconnecting with the very people who have nurtured and raised you. 
with the people who have been a fundamental part of your life. I bet if I ask everyone in this room what their favorite meal is, that the vast majority of people would talk about a dish that either their mother or grandmother cooked, whose flavor and taste has never left their memory. But when you decide to move into a totally different environment, assimilate by forgetting where and what you came from, the psychic cost is of disconnection, of often feeling as if you're unrooted from the plantation that started you from the life that gave you being and started you. That's why I think it's a, it, it is important and has been to me never to forget where I came from, what I've been a part of, and to learn how to live in the worlds that I've entered. And there's a line in my book where I talk about to kids who come from backgrounds similar to mine. I use my community activities to give me comfort and security in these strange environments. But the one thing I was careful not to do was to make them an anchor and to not let me reach out to explore the new world I was in. So I did those things but I did other things too in the larger community. Mm -hmm. And I did them because I wanted to figure out what this new world was that I was in. And so for me, it was a fine balance, but one that I have maintained throughout my entire life. Because who Sonia is, is her family. It's the memories of my grandmother. It's the seances and my cousins and I laughing about them. You know, um, it's my grandmother's uh, rice and bean soup that no one has ever duplicated. <laughs> <laughs> but do you feel that those cultural awarenesses have had a positive influence on your fellow Supreme Court justices? And if so, how? Hmm. You know, at the end of my first year, um, the law clerks put on a roast of the justices, and we all attend. Um, that first year, um, uh, part of the roast was introducing me and roasting me for my entry into the court. <laughs> and it, the show ended with one of the law clerks taking me out to dance salsa. So we're dancing salsa, and I decide, oh, this is no fun, me dancing up here by myself. And I went out and grabbed every one of the justices. <laughs> and they all danced. Really? Did, could they get down? Yep. <laughs> even, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who had just lost her husband, Aww. got up and did it. Um, and so, no, I mean, I, I don't know. Um, what influence I have on them as individuals. I'm not even sure what influence I'll have on the court. People think that five years on the court is a long time. In the life of a justice, 
that's a drop in the bucket. It's the beginning of you developing yourself, your jurisprudence, your views on, the, on what being a justice means to you and to your view of the development of law. And so I'm at the very beginning of my judicial life as a justice. And so it's hard to answer that question. Well, which is funny because you write in several different occasions when you're you know, jumping into new waters, when you're trying to fill these big new shoes, you take the first year to kind of figure things out, the second year to adapt to it. Uh, and I wonder, you know, this happened, you, you, you write of your knees knocking when you were first a, a circuit, <sighs> a, a, an appellate, appellate judge. No, district court judge. The very first judge. time I went on, on the, federal the bench, bench. Uh, I could hear my knees knocking in my ears. I thought everybody in the courtroom could hear them. <laughs> it was really unbelievable. Um, I knew it would take me longer to adjust to being a justice. The responsibilities are so incredibly uh, greater than it is or was being a district or circuit court judge. And so I'm still sort of adjusting, learning the ropes. But I think this year I've begun to realize that I'm a little bit more comfortable. And in fact, um, this year um, I have actually changed my work schedule. I used to work the weekends before oral arguments, Saturday and Sunday, um, full days in the office. And now I decided that I'm not gonna go in either morning till noon. And I try to do something with the morning so I explore DC a little bit. We, we have a lot of questions about that. Your daily routine, how she fits in your meals and exercise and sleep and you know what you have for lunch. You know, um, Wash, I, I've, it's been reputed in every newspaper in Washington, okay? And they talk about it often. That I talk about DC not being New York. They don't deliver food. <laughs> <laughs> so generally on Sundays on my way home, I stop at the supermarket and I buy my provisions for the week for breakfast and lunch, which I have at the office. And so um, it's usually simple, not too complex, but it's something healthy and quick, okay? Um, I go to the gym during the week, minimum two times. I try to go on the weekend once. I like exercising. And in September, I bought a bicycle, and one of the Saturday morning things I've been doing is exploring DC, Virginia, and Maryland by biking. Um, uh, I, you know, I love it. I, at one time in my life, I rode a century, a hundred miles. Um, I'm out of shape now. <laughs> I don't know if I can get back there, but I'm going to try. Um, what are my days like? For the young students here, they're going to think a little boring. I spend most of my days when I'm not in court reading thinking, and writing. That's the life of a justice. We are reading the briefs that lawyers have given us. We're reading our own cases so that we can apply them to the new set of facts before us. We're thinking about how to resolve those cases. And we're writing not just opinions, 
but sometimes dissents and sometimes concurrences, which just means that we agree with the outcome, but we don't agree with how the other guys got there. Um, and often, we're writing memos to each other. The memos can have to do with our views of a draft that someone else has circulated. Sometimes it's an issue that has come up by way of motion, um, or other times it's an issue that has arisen in a case that we're considering whether we're gonna take it and hear oral argument. And all of those present situations where we're talking to each other in writing and we're exchanging our views until we come to a resolution. But in the midst of all of that, I'm meeting with groups, and we get hundreds of thousands of people who visit the Supreme Court. I invite everybody in this audience, if you've never been to your nation's capital, our nation's capital, go. It's a wonderful city to visit. First of all, it's one of the few cities that I've been to where virtually all of the museums are free and they have incredible art. It's also relatively affordable, meaning there is a price range for hotel and eating within every spectrum of our society. But more importantly, the capital affects you because the things that happen there affect your lives. So come and learn about it. The Supreme Court gives wonderful tours. So does the Capitol. Almost all of the public buildings, like the Library of Congress, is the most amazing tour you could ever take. Um, for those book people out there, and I know there's plenty of them, if you haven't been there, then you're missing the greatest library in the world. Um, and I, know, and I know you think yours is, but <laughs> you do have to remember that every copyrighted thing that's been written is kept by the Library of Congress. And so no one can compete with that collection. Um, and the building is extraordinary. But my days are spent with meeting with groups sometimes preparing speeches, sometimes preparing moot courts for law schools I'm gonna visit. Um, we get international visitors, we get judges from around the world, some who come to talk to us about our work because they're trying to learn how to apply some of our American principles to their system of justice. Um, we get government officials from around the world I have met presidents of foreign countries, attorney generals, secretaries of states. They're all interested in our court. And so my day, yes, sounds boring unless you recognize that what I'm doing, I'm passionate about. Being a voice in making some of the most important legal decisions that face the country is an incredible privilege. And because it is a privilege, it's important for me never to abuse it, to be as well prepared in making my decisions as I humanly can be, and to spend as much time as I need reading, thinking, and writing 
so that at least my vote is well informed. Thank you. This is a trait for you. This is a theme for you, being really well prepared in the work that you do. Uh, and in your job out of college, I think it was uh, at the uh, district attorney's office in Manhattan with Robert Morgenthau. Was he the one who helped you develop not just the legal narrative, but were you connected to your heart? And I want to hear more about it that. It wasn't Bob Morgenthau. It was one of my bureau chiefs. Uh -huh. um, the DA's office was broken up into what others would call uh, divisions or departments. And I was in a trial division or department, a bureau. And one of, the bureau, one of my bureau chiefs I went to talk to after I lost two cases back to back. And he sat me down and he said, tell me what you did. And I recited the evidence in both cases and he was very patient listening to me. And I looked at him at the end and I said, I shouldn't have lost these cases. I don't know why I did. And he looked and he said, you haven't convinced the jury that it was their obligation to convict. What meaning was? Even, well, you know, when he explained it to me, it made eminent sense to me. It's hard to judge another human being. There is nothing easy about sitting in judgment about the facts of a case that may affect deeply another person. And judges can tell jurors all they want, don't think about the punishment, that's my job. But I think most jurors, it enters their mind. And what my bureau chief was trying to explain to me, and which he did explain to me, you have to, in the trial, get jurors to understand that it is their civic responsibility to convict if the evidence is proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And the only way you can do that is to show them your passion about being right and to show them your integrity in the work as you're presenting it to them. And I never lost a case after that. Um, I took his advice and thought about how sort of black and white and, you know, sort of, you know, this is the evidence. The facts, ma'am, the facts, ma'am. You, you remember Dragnet, right? <laughs> um, that's what I had been as a prosecutor up to that point. But I became a different lawyer. I understood that lawyering is about persuasion. It's about convincing people that what you're saying is right. And evidence can do that, but you have to present it in a convincing way. And so that changed me as a lawyer. And I think ultimately it helped change me as a person because I realized that those attributes, passion, connectivity with people, those are life skills. And they're life skills that draw you closer to people. 
And so I think it helped me both professionally and personally. Well, I'm thinking about your narrative of your marriage. You were married when you were quite young. And high school sweethearts. High school sweethearts, mm -hmm. right? And you started the job at the DA's office working really hard, trying to get your find your feet. Um, and your marriage broke up and you 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 say that it was the demands of the job and your husband felt that you didn't really need him. Mm. Um, didn't you didn't grow up thinking that need was a part of love? And I'm wondering how you learned differently. Of any passage that created more controversy among all of my readers. It was that passage. What, really? Why do you think? Uh, um, as most of them explained it, um, and, and it was more controversy by the women in my life. Huh. You know, I had a number of women friends who read the book, the draft of the book, and First of all, some feared that I would scare off any other potential man <laughs> in my life. That was some of the guys, okay? And then some of my women friends thought that it might feel insulting to some other women for me to say that need shouldn't be a part of love. And so they forced me to explain what I meant in, in, in a more nuanced way. And I think I, I hope I accomplished that in the book. Um, my husband felt that that existential self-reliance that I had meant that I didn't need him. He said to me as we were breaking up, I always felt that if I died tomorrow, you would cry, but you would pick up the day after. And that hurt. It really hurt to hear him say that because I loved him. And I knew that at least for between both of us, there had been real love at some point. That I didn't make him feel important enough in my life was my failure. But I wasn't sure that that had to translate into need. Um, to need someone is different than to want someone. And I think that difference is what guides me, to want to share a life with another person, to share it willingly and to give out of wanting rather than need. Um, and I haven't given up hope I'll meet somebody. <laughs> I understand it's a little intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> but I am the eternal optimist. <laughs> I am. <laughs> well, I think it must, be, it must be difficult after growing up as you did. Even though you had examples of true warmth, you also had uh, a lot of pain. Um, you had a, a very beloved cousin, Nelson, mm -hmm. who you say were, we were, you were almost twins when you were kids who became a heroin addict and actually died of AIDS. I'm so sorry because the, the descriptions of him are so warm and beautiful. Can I tell you a story? Please. Um, the only person who I shared 
besides my brother and my mother, who I shared a draft of the book with, was Nelson's sister, my cousin Miriam. When you, when you read the book, and I hope you will, you'll know how important she is in my life, and she's an amazing woman. But I felt I needed her and her mother's permission to share Nelson's story with the world. Miriam apparently read the book. Um, she started after dinner one night and spent the entire night and through the night reading it. And the next morning, she called me up and said that after she finished it, she couldn't stop crying. And she said she had talked to her mom and that they had both agreed in what Miriam described to my aunt, that I was bringing Nelson back alive and that I was giving his life the potential of meaning. And she said that if his story could help even one child avoid his path, then it was worth telling the story. So I'm really grateful to my cousin um, because I loved Nelson and she knows that. Um, and I'm grateful that she and my aunt were so generous. By the way, there were members of my um, uncle's family who had not known Nelson died of AIDS. Oh my goodness. So the book was quite a disclosure. How about for your mother? I'm, I'm wondering about that because you, there, you go through some difficult times with your mother. Uh, when you were young, she, uh, you mentioned your father was an alcoholic. She worked a lot. She may have kept herself out of the family, uh, out of the household anyway. And there was a sense of abandonment there. Um, and later you talk about you know, some of the scrapes or let's say brushes with a danger that you had as a diabetic when you were growing up that your mother didn't know about. What, what does she think of this book? My mother, um, like Justice Ginsburg, because of her aging eyes, can't read in one sitting. So she was reading it. She read it in three installments, three consecutive nights. And every night she called me crying. Um, the first night she ended with chapter seven, which is my favorite chapter of the book. It's a chapter of my mom's life. But you have to read the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. Don't jump to chapter seven. <laughs> because you won't appreciate it unless you understand the backdrop, okay? I think I placed it where I did that chapter because it was a counterpoint to the picture I had painted of my mother and father before then. At any rate, um, what I don't know if I got across enough in the book or not, is that my mom and I spent a lot of time working through our relationship. We really had worked at coming to terms with each of our emotions not just about each other, but about the life that she had had, I had and was having. And I knew that by the time I wrote this book, that my mother would understand. And she did. Um, my mother um, said that when she finished the book, that she heard my voice in her ears. Mm. 
So I knew that the book had really gotten my voice in. Well, you're so vividly speak of growing up, and, and at a point in the book, I think it maybe when you were working for the DA, you realized that what I learned in my childhood among the Latinos of the Bronx proved to be as re relevant to my success as Ivy League schooling was. Now, I wonder about that, those experiences, and I've got a question here from the audience that may actually ask this in another way. It says, I grew up in the Smith Projects on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I was the only sibling to leave the projects and wondered what you thought about the resiliency in people of our backgrounds. A teacher believed in me. You'll read in my book that I believe that no successful person exists unless they find that one teacher, that one person in their life who believes in them. Mine was my grandmother. She gave me unconditional love. Your teacher must have given you confidence. But you joked about it at the beginning. You said after reading my book, you knew that if anybody could get here, it would be me. <laughs> yeah, there's a toughness. There's a grit. You don't live in the world that you, I grew up in, in public housing, in South Bronx, which is Fort Apache. Um, some of people here may remember that Fort Apache, when I was growing up, was the most crime-written neighborhood in the nation. And there's a movie about it, and if anybody's interested, I bet it's somewhere on one of those Netflix things or something. Um, but the image that you see of the neighborhood, of the people there, because it was centered on the criminal elements of the neighborhood is not a very appealing picture. It's a hard life to grow up in that neighborhood. But one of the purposes of my book was to remind people that in all of those environments, whether it's the South Bronx or the poorest neighborhood in New Hampshire or the barrios of um, California or the streets of Chicago, the tough streets of Chicago, there are human beings there who are living lives with the hopes and dreams that everybody in this audience has. People who have integrity, who have a commitment to trying to better themselves and their children, who teach, who are attempting to teach their children a sense of honesty and integrity, of family, and of support. And that's what I wanted to leave people with. You gotta look behind the crime and the drugs and the dirt and the deteriorating buildings, and you've got to look at the faces because many of them are like you. And so telling the story, telling that story was part of this, just like the teacher in this room. I bet, like me, we both survived because, not because we left the projects, but because we had hope for our futures and something or someone gave us that. Well, you, your story embodies the American dream. Uh, 
young woman, bilingual household, raised by your mother, father an alcoholic, living in the projects. And you know, you personally personify that, but what about now? What about those who say that it is no longer possible for somebody who is growing up in that kind of environment to excel? I think it's harder. I think it's harder in part today because the quality of education in those neighborhoods has deteriorated substantially. Mm -hmm. The cost, you know, my mom could afford, through hard work, to send my brother and I to Catholic school. First, because after my dad died, we were a two for one. They only charged my mom one tuition. And it was $25 a month. That's a far cry, even when you deal with inflation from the cost of Catholic school even today, which is much lower than the cost of private schools in New York. I think it's harder because we don't, um, we don't have um, people, some people in these neighborhoods who are actually working directly with kids to help them show, to help them see a different world and a different life. And a lot of these areas have become enclaves for drug wars. You know, the one thing that was wonderful for me, or, or gang wars, one thing that was wonderful me in the, for me in the projects is we could play outside during the day. There were no-no areas, like we couldn't go into stairwells because there was always uh, paraf drug paraphernalia in the, in the stairways. And we wouldn't go out by ourselves without a male with us at night. But during the day, the neighborhood was safe. That doesn't exist today. And those are major, major differences in the ability of kids to get out. You were nine years old when your father died. Got a question from the audience. What advice you would give to a nine-year-old girl today? If her dad died. Or, or not. Or not. Learn to have real fun. Let me describe to you what I mean by real fun. I think that there's nothing more exciting in the world than to be curious about the world. To learn something new every single day of your life. Because when you do that, it's exciting. It's exciting to share information with people. It's exciting to know something you didn't know the day before. And sometimes it's useful. It can help you do something new. So have that kind of fun. Playing games is lovely. I play poker. It's a card game. You know why I play it? Because it lets me use some of my strategy and math skills. Because you have to calculate the odds of winning. And so every time I'm playing with people, I get to learn something new about how to play the game better. And that's what I mean about fun.
be curious about the world. And the second bit of advice I'm going to give you at nine-year-old, you feel better when you're being nice to other people. It is really meaningful when you do a kind thing for someone else. Sometimes all it takes is seeing someone sad and saying, I'm sorry you're sad. Because at least you're recognizing that they hurt. Sometimes it means giving your brother or your sister a piece of that candy they're asking for. But sometimes it means just simply not thinking about you, but thinking about someone else. If you can go to sleep every night and say, what did I learn new every night? And every night say to yourself, what nice thing did I do today? How did I help somebody? You're going to have a really incredible life. You're going to be successful. You're going to have good friends. And at the end of the day, you're going to like yourself. And I don't know that there's much else to living than to end up liking you. So I don't know who you are. Um, did she write her name? I'm sorry to say no. I'm hoping she's here with a parent or friend. Would you please come up at the end of the show so I can give you a hug? <laughs> and we'll take a picture together, okay? If you're raising your hand, I can't see you because of the lights, but please come up. And I know that it can be very tough to face a lot of people, but believe me, only lawyers think I bite them. I really don't bite. <laughs> well, I'm going to pause for a moment and thank some of the people who made this night so special. The executive producer and live stage presentation director of Writers on a New England Stage, Patricia Lynch. The producer and communications director, Margaret Talcott, New Hampshire Public Radio's president, Betsy Gardella. New Hampshire Public Radio's broadcast producer is Maureen McMurray. NHPR's digital producer, Sarah Plord. The music hall production manager, Jana Morris. The music hall live sound and recording engineer, Rachel Newbar. The musical director and band, Bob Lord and Dreadnought. And live stage photos from Clear Eye Photo. They will be posted online. Please join me in giving a warm thank you to Justice Sonia Sotomayor.